Hi everyone, Mike Claiborne here and welcome to another edition of ClaibsOnline.com. Well, we've got a special guest for you today. He's a gentleman who's been in the sports business for over 30 years. He's represented a number of professional leagues and teams. He's also worked for different operations as well, including Anheuser-Busch. He's got a lot of experience when it comes to sports and how to do sports the right way. He is now with Fleischman Hilliard and he's got a lot of things to say about sports how we talk about it, how we present it, and what we can expect down the road after we get through COVID-19. His name is Jim Woodcock. He's with Fleshman Hilliard, and we'll hear from him after we take this time out on ClaibsOnline.com. We have a chance today to visit with Richard Mark, the chairman and president of Ameren, Illinois. And Richard, considering how many people that are working from home, and you have families at home as well, a lot of electricity is being used and a lot of power is being used and there are still ways to save. The best way to save energy is don't use it. And so not only reminding our children and ourselves to turn lights off, but in this day and age to turn our electronic appliances off, our electronic devices off. When you charge your cell phone and then you unplug it from your phone, if it's still plugged into a wall socket, uh, if it does not have some type of smart switch that you have it plugged into, that energy is still being used. So people don't realize all of the ways that they're still using energy. And of course, our visit today is brought to you by Ameren, Illinois, and also our good friends from Munganast Automotive. With us today is Jim Woodcock. He's with Fleischman Hilliard, a world-renowned company when it comes to public relations. But Jim is the co-founder of the Global Sports and Business Practice at Fleischman. Kind of created something that has really gone in the right direction. And we'll talk a lot more about that as we get into visiting with Jim. And Jim, first of all, we thank you for visiting with us today. Uh, A busy time, surely for you, but certainly for your industry as well. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Claims. We're as busy in, in the sports space than, than I think, you know, we, we are as busy as we would have been normally. We're just doing different things. And um, our clients right now are coming to us for counsel and in some cases, uh, you know, uh, materials and writing and, and, and messaging around uh, their approach to uh, COVID-19 and, and, and how their particular team or league or whatever is going to deal with it and come out of it. Um, so in some cases, you know, we're, we're, we're working with leagues and in some cases teams and some cases brands and everyone's challenge is quite the same and they're coming to us. So where we would have been perhaps at, uh, uh, say right now the you know, the Stanley Cup playoffs or, you know, activations around big major sporting events, we're actually counseling our, our clients right now and, and, and how to attack, you know, what is a challenge for everyone around the world. As I mentioned, uh, you mentioned the word clients. I should aware, make everyone aware that you have everyone that you've represented, whether it's the National Hockey League, the National Football League, international soccer, USA soccer. Uh, it's a very vast list of, of clients that you work with in the past. So I want to go back to when the shutdown was first announced and the NBA started everything when they had a player test positive. Adam Silver didn't flinch. He shut down the league and everyone followed suit. What went through your mind, and what was the first thing that came to your mind when this whole thing unfolded? Well, at that time, there were a lot of our clients were, you know, we were in email, text, uh, flurries, really, as far as, uh, uh, really, at that time, that's kind of keeping up with, with uh, you know, the, the number of cases that were being reported. And these weren't deaths, these were just cases. And at that time, I think that was like on March 11th, there was a couple thousand cases uh, in the United States, and and. Um, you look back now, and, and that's almost a significant number. It's an important number, certainly, but, but compared to where we're at today, 
um, you know, it, it was 2,000 or so, so cases. And yet, everyone understood that those numbers were growing uh, quickly and, and, and you know, in, in, a, in a manner that, you know, we had to address sooner than later. So um, it, was a, it was an evening, it was a Wednesday evening, I remember that, and uh, it, it came across the news like, you know, I, I, I didn't find out any sooner than anyone else did. Uh, it's uh, breaking news. The NBA suspended the entire season. Well, immediately as soon as you read and hear that, you know what's next. It's going to be the NHL. It's going to be Major League Baseball. Be major events uh, like golf championships, uh, tennis championships, auto racing, the Kentucky Derby. Uh, no one was going to follow that news by the NBA. Good for them. We kind of see it differently, and we're going to plow through. So at that time, it was just a matter of for our clients and probably for for you know sports organizations around the world. It's just like we know what we're going to have to do. How do we do it? How do we talk about it? When do we talk about it? Who talks about it? And what's our plan to come out of it? And at the time, you know, the, the plans for coming out of this sort of thing is really tough to to sort of measure because you know even today we don't know what two months from now looks like. Well, back in March we really didn't know. Um, so it was, um, it was a frenzied period. Uh, I would tell you that right now there's still a lot of that happening. You know, there's a lot of surprises. Many of them are good surprises now. I think, you know, we're starting to see some, some flattening and, you know, some, some talk about resurgence and recovery versus, you know, addressing really how to get, you know, how, how to deal with the, the, the here and now. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a career moment for me and for anyone in our industry because no one's gone through anything like this before. And, um, you know, how we attack it will really be a mark on our, our professional careers, you know, how well we did, how well our clients survived it, uh, and p- perhaps came out of it not only well, but, uh, stronger. The lines of communication, uh, obviously essential at this time. And while I know you talk to your clients, but somebody's got to have a voice to talk to the public. And one of the things that I've noticed with virtually every league, there's been one voice. And even with the local teams, there's been one voice. How important is it for you to get in front of that situation and make sure that they understand what the premise should be and how it should be conveyed compared to them just having a hunch or I don't know or just, you know, shooting from the hip and really not being as informed, not only for that time period, but certainly what the future may hold. Well, you mentioned something about the one voice, and, and that's one of the most important, really, tenets of our industry at it, during any time. What, now, you can't do that, obviously, for an NHL team when you have a general manager or head coach has to speak after games, a general manager around trade deadlines and player movement and, and so on. So, I'm using the NHL as an example because, you know, I'm, I'm here in St. Louis and the Blues, obviously, have experienced some pause in their season. Um, so you, it's hard to, to expect one voice coming out of something, uh, like an NHL team, but the best you possibly can, can, you know, really streamline your voice in a situation like this, the better, uh, because there's just so much uncertainty and with uncertainty comes speculation. And what we try to do with our clients is really counsel them to, to, to be patient and calm and understand that what you want to do is when you do come out and what is, whatever it is that you want to say or need to say, you're able to say it once and be able to rely on it and sort of refer to it a day later, three weeks later, a month later. Where clients, or not, maybe not clients, but just teams and, and, and organizations can kind of get in trouble is sort of, sort of almost a play-by-play and saying something 
every day as time marches on. And then you start to appear as though you really don't have a plan and uh, you're not steady and you're not, you know, really confident in what you're doing. So a lot of times, you know, the, the, the urge is to get out with a, with a message right away, a statement, a position. My feeling is I, that's a good, that's a good premise. I mean, that, that, that's really a good objective. Uh, but don't do it at the risk of having to do it again tomorrow and three days later and such like that. Be patient. Know what you want to talk about and make sure you've got your facts and make sure that you know that whatever you say is going to affect your organization and your your constituencies, not only that moment, but, you know, perhaps for in perpetuity, because people will remember how you dealt with this. Yeah, that's a great point you make. And I'll go back to a situation. And I'm sure you remember when President Reagan was shot. And Alexander Haig had the infamous words, I, from, from, at this point, I'm in control now. And yeah, yeah. I knew what he was trying to say, but it didn't come over the right way. It cost him his career, obviously. But it was something that in the heat of battle and the emotion that takes over and the adrenaline flow is so high that people have that tendency not to take a deep breath, not to remain patient. And we, we, we see it a lot more even today in how we cover things that you, you just have to be guarded and calculated and, and basically te- take that step back, I would imagine. Yeah, I think I couldn't really say it any better than that, Clegs. I mean, it, it's, it is difficult, um, you know, in times of crisis. And, and crisis doesn't necessarily have to mean something spectacular like an explosion or, or an attack or something like that. It could be issues-oriented. Um, this is this is very much a crisis, you know, in almost every respect, in that it it was sudden um, and 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 devastating, and yet, you know, life kind of went on. You know, it was just how we were going to live our lives. Uh, so you 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 have to do it all. You have to be responsive and, and accountable, but you also have to be careful that you don't come out too fast because, again, you are remembered how for how you deal with, you know, situations that really test your courage, test your, you know, your decision-making, and, and test your tenants and, and, and your principles as, as a company or a brand, or in my case, like a sports organization. Uh, I, can't, I can't underline enough um, the importance, and, and Adam Silver will, will, will be the example that will last, you know, a lifetime. Um, he acted immediately. Now, I will wager that uh, he probably, what felt like immediate to us, was probably uh, a day's worth of thought. So, he, you know, he still had some time to think about it. Or if he didn't have time, he did think about it. He took whatever time he had to think about it. But he acted. And he, he, he made the right decision. Now, if you, if you act like Adam Silver and make the wrong decision, you'll be remembered for that just as much as Adam Silver is remembered for what he did. Jim Woodcock of Fleischman Hilliard is our guest here on ClavesOnline.com. All right, I have decided I'm taking a class at one of these great prestigious institutions we have here in St. Louis because Professor Jim Woodcock is teaching the class, and it's crisis management is what he's teaching. I bring my notebook and my my pen, and I'm writing down the three most important things one should know in dealing with crisis management. So you have the floor, Professor Woodcock. (laughs) Well, there's... You put me on the spot to come up with three because there's really about ten. Um, uh, one thing you, you don't want to do is guess. Uh, you, you don't want to lie. You, you, you want to always tell the truth in, 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 in you know, times of, of uh, crisis and, and pressure. Um, and you want to make sure that your 
uh, message is really customized and appropriate for the audiences that you're trying to reach. Um, if you are, uh, you know, if you're if you're an elected official, that's going to be different than if you are a a team president. Um, you know, how you speak and where you speak and what your message is has got to be tailored really for the circumstance and for your audience. Um, so, but I think the biggest thing you, you have to remember though is you don't guess, you don't speculate. Uh, again, in times like the, these, you know, if you get behind a microphone and you're asked a question that there really is no answer to, don't don't try to guess at what that answer is. Uh, take a pause, you know, and just say, you know, we're going to have to get back to you on that. Uh, we do owe you an answer on that. We're going to give you an answer. But right now we don't have it. And you're going to get a lot more points for doing that than if you will to speculate and get. And then you have to go back and retract. And, and then really you've, you've, you've lost all credibility and probably the, you know, the confidence and faith of your, of your, of your internal audiences as well as your external audience. Well, I'm a good A out of this class. I'll, I'll be fine. I'm, I'm excited now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want to move on and talk to you about um, your clients. And, you know, you work with a lot of great organizations that are steeped in tradition, great tradition, I might add. How do you maintain that tradition and yet stay proactive in how things work today because some of the traditions can make people uncomfortable some of the traditions of some that maybe people don't understand and yet and still you want to make sure that this client is still portrayed in a positive light so how do you walk that line of maintaining tradition but also maybe trying to even be out in front on some things well it's actually a great question i you know i think tradition usually is interchangeable with excellence i mean you know if yeah, I wouldn't want clients who have a poor tradition, to be fair. Um, and normally the ones that we have, especially Hillard, and the ones that I've been very lucky to be affiliated with over my career, uh, those clients, their traditions have been celebrated and very strong over the years. Uh, because because they're strong and because they've got this great reputation, they're usually open-minded to, if not staying ahead of the curve, at least keeping pace uh, so that they don't, sacrifice everything that they built over decades uh, for, say, Snapchat, you know, or or some of the digital platforms that are really, you know, spectacular and very useful for, for teams and, and, and organizations, but aren't right necessarily for every sports entity in the world. Um, but if you recognize the importance of them and, and at least try to understand, like, if, if you don't want to go in that direction, you may want to think about going in this direction. That's what we try to bring our clients is like a, you know, a wide spectrum of thinking. Uh, some options is to, to perhaps how to reach a younger audience that is maybe a little more elusive for them than other clients. Um, it's, it's, it's a balancing act, Claves, but it's doable. And, the, and one reason it's doable, I think, is because of all the options that are out there today. <clears throat> Once upon a time, you know, your, your categories were print, radio, television. That was it. Print could mean magazine and or newspaper but that was pretty much the limit now and you know obviously today just what you're holding in your hand you know your, your cell phone there's probably 15 platforms within the, in the cell phone itself and and um, I, I'm still kind of a throwback you know I think of I, I think of my approach usually in more like a New York Times sort of uh, format you know I want to go to the most influential writers with the greatest following, and it doesn't have to be a Twitter following, but just you know the greatest reputational following, uh, where I know that if I go to them with a story 
or or I need their help understanding a situation that a client is in, <clears throat> they've got the intelligence and the and the you know the experience uh, to get it right. Uh, but I have those those same situations. A younger counselor at Fleshman Hillard or in our industry, they say no one's going to read your statement if it's in the New York Times. You know this sport is not a New York Times kind of sport. It's more. It's more into the digital age. And so I've got to respect that. And that's what's great about a company like ours is we have, you know, youngsters, I'll call them, who are coming through the ranks right now. And they see communications differently than I do. And um, I'm going to be the last one out of that pool, you know, because I, I, I kind of still, you know, feel like, you know, you build reputation and you build credibility, um, you know, really with, with, you know, probably a little more of a conservative. Uh, uh, that doesn't mean you, you, you can't be creative, but but uh, you, you've got some anchor journalists that you can trust and go to that will you know tell your story the right way. Um, but it's it's hard. It is, and uh, uh, sports, especially that are really really steep in tradition, uh, like golf, uh, like baseball, that have literally centuries of traditions. Those are some of the the ones that are a little a little more challenging, really, to, to you know keep up with the times. You've been in this business for over thirty years, the business of sport in a, in a variety of capacities, and now we're going to see sports change again. I would imagine after we uh, get this issue behind us, that be it the uh, COVID nineteen. What changes do you see, and, and what do you think is probably the most common one aside from the social distancing that I think everyone has come to accept is going to be part of how sports will change? Well, uh, this is probably a weak answer, Clay, but I'm not sure I have an answer for that just yet. It's it's almost like COVID itself. It's it's like, you know, I think we need a little more time to understand its impact and and, and what what the experience... To me, I think the biggest biggest change that I think we can all agree is going to be the in-person experience. And what does that look like? And it's not just... It's not just going to the ballpark or the arena and kind of thinking twice about sitting in section 112 with literally hundreds of people that you don't know just around you to say nothing of 17,000 other people in the building at the same time. It's not just that. It's also in line for, uh, for, for the hot dog between periods and, and, and the beer and so on and so forth. You know, how do those lines look moving forward? You know, and how does the line look coming into the stadium or the arena uh, as you enter? Will there be, you know, temperature checks and, and all that? And, and if there are, are those going to be, you know, with us forever or are they just for now? Um, to me, I think the, the, the in-person experience will be the one that will, you know, warrant the, the greatest, um, you know, attention. I kind of feel that if we play sports this year, without fans, I think we'll be okay. And there, I know there are a lot of people out there that just can't fathom the idea of watching a sporting event on television um, without people in the seats. Um, I, I will offer that we'll get used to it pretty quickly for two reasons. One is we are hungry for live sporting content again. Okay, so I think if, if we have a ball game that's being played by the, you know, uh, in an empty stadium, I think, We'll accept it and understand why why it is what why why it is and you know there really is no other option. And the second part is 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 you know sports like the NFL and soccer they're sort of made for television sports to begin with. Um, with you know, in fact, in soccer it's not unusual at all in Europe to play 
matches, you know, in empty stadiums because of fan unrest or, or, or you know, socio, uh, you know, governmental situations or whatever in Europe. It's, it's not unusual at all. I'm not saying that that means it's right or good or ideal, but it happens. And I, I just think, like, you think of an NFL game. It's a 100-yard field. It's a three-hour product. Um, I think if, you know, outside of your field goal attempts and that sort of thing, you're going to look at that game, and it's going to look pretty much the same, especially if you're at a, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings or whatever you got, you know, five, six screens right there in front of you, all the different games on the same time. I, I think it's going to look pretty similar to the games in 2019. Um, now, we don't want that to be the case forever, but I think it, it, it'll it'll work for the short term. Um, I hope it does because I think that's what we're going to be looking at. Well, you know, I'll take it one step further. I think with, with technology that we already have as far as how we watch games and flat-screen TVs and the view and things of that nature – uh, it, it'll be a little bit of a challenge for technology and networks to try and enhance the broadcast even more. But I, I agree with you. I think we'll be content with watching it on TV because it's a better product now. And the games have been designed to be better products for TV. We've all talked about how football is a TV sport. Soccer is a TV sport. Hockey is trying to get there. I mean, they've done some things as far as the puck is concerned and they've got better camera angles. But the bottom line is this technology has allowed them to advance, and I think we're going to see the next big step to even create more fan interest from their couch and from their living room or for their favorite bar. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, in fact, I, I I believe we will see a run, if we haven't already seen a run, on television screens being sold. You know, the, the, I, think, I think consumers are going to say, you know, I've always wanted a second screen. In my in my you know family room or whatever, I think we're going to see them. Or now is the time because there's going to be so much sports content that's going to be backloaded in 2020 that it's going to be impossible to keep up with it all. So people will buy television, additional televisions, I believe, to to, to, to consume it. You know, your laptop and all that can only get so much. And I think we're going to get used to it. Uh, it we saw the draft, uh, the NFL draft, where where you know just literally a couple weeks ago. The, the, all the odds makers were saying this is going to be a disaster. How are they going to do this? And at the end, I dare say, not only did they do a great job, there's talk now about like how do we keep this? How, how do we keep this format? Which isn't going to happen because there's so much that's invested in cities like Cleveland and, and Las Vegas are going to be hosting the future NFL draft. But there you saw it because of because of the need. The NFL did a spectacular job of being resourceful, presenting a product that wasn't merely adequate or acceptable. It was outstanding. So if we come back in the fall uh, or the summer with, with the NHL and the NBA and so on, I think that those rights holders, you know, your television, you know, came and it's going to feel just fine. And, well, we don't want it forever. I mean, no. I, I don't. I don't, I don't suggest that, that, you know, this is the long-term solution. I hope it's not, um, because I think fans are extremely, you know, essential to, to the experience uh, of a sporting event, including watching it on television. But, you know, if we all live to be 100 years old, 2020 will be one one-hundredth of our, of our lives. And it's just because this is, this is the year where nothing is the same. And we just have to accept it and adapt, and and hopefully, you know, we all come through this thing together strong. And and you know, sports is just a very very small part of everything that we're trying to understand 
as to what life is going to look like in a post-COVID-19 world. Stand by, folks. We've got more of Jim Woodcock. It's coming your way after we take this break and after you hear these important messages. When you think about electricity and natural gas, how many natural gas customers do you have in the state 816,000 gas customers in the state of Illinois that we serve. That's so. a big number. It is. It's a, it's a big number and big responsibility. You know, we don't take that lightly. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a privilege to serve the customers in the state of Illinois. And, our, and me and my coworkers, you know, we take that very seriously. So if you think about the state of Illinois, anything but pretty much Chicago and the Chicago suburbs is served by Ameren, Illinois. And so our service territory is actually uh, 44,000 square miles. It's bigger than the state of Indiana. That's a lot of coverage, and so when you think about coverage and we think about sources of energy, most people think of Ameren, Illinois for electricity, but natural gas is a major player in what you do. Yes, it is, uh, Mike. You know, natural gas, we, you know, like you said, Ameren, a lot of people think electricity, but Ameren, Illinois is made up of three companies that all had natural gas before, and those combined companies are a top 25 gas utility in the nation. We have over 18,000 miles of pipeline throughout the state, 12 uh, storage fields and uh, 1,250 miles of transmission lines that serve our customers. That, that's a lot of property and a lot of coverage. So give me some of the uses for natural gas and some of the things it's being used for other than maybe being on a gas grill. Yeah, so I, you know, the easiest way for me to describe that is, uh, you know, I built a house about 10, 12 years ago. So I have a gas furnace. I have a, it heats my home, obviously. I have a gas water heater. I have a natural gas dryer. I have a gas stove for cooking my food and oven. I also have a gas uh, fireplace, which also serves as a little furnace for my living room. And I have a gas grill, as you mentioned, for cooking my food. So I got six appliances in my house that run on natural gas. So you're covered with gas, or in this case, cooking with gas. Yeah, I'm you're cooking with, with gas, gas, right. Jim Woodcock of Fleshman Hilliard's our guest. And Jim, as we look at this big picture, <clears throat> and it's an interesting way you put it, you know, it's, it's just one portion of our life. Um, where, where do you see this this sport as we know it going with regard to revenue stream? Because obviously everybody's taking a haircut here because everybody's losing money in one way or another. So that means there's got to be some new revenue stream that's going to certainly wet the whistle, not only of advertisers, but certainly fans as well. What's the next step? Because we've gone through a number of things. Is it going to be the being able to gamble more? Is it going to be something that we probably haven't thrown on the board yet? Yeah, I, I you, you hit it on, on, on gambling. And, and that's, that's, you know, that's the most, you know, warm term for it, you know, I can call it, uh, you know, legalized gaming or whatever you want to say, call it. But I, I think that that's probably it. Um, again, it's something that is not unusual to sporting events and organizations throughout the world. Um, it's it obviously, you know, it's a little slow to arrive here in the United States outside of your cities like Vegas, et cetera. And, and I, I think that, uh, that, that, that that's probably the next frontier. Um, I, you know, it, it sounds like a cliche, but anything digital, it's just, you know, the, the more mobile we are and the more options we have to consume anything, whether it's news, entertainment, or sports, usually it boils down to mobility. And I want to be able to watch the game in its entirety wherever, wherever I'm at. And again, you know, that, that, that's really happening now. But I think there's like another dimension out there that we don't understand. And we'll be able to consume sports into an even greater deal moving forward. And we, and we may have to because 
what what life looks like after COVID may require that. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's this is going to be fascinating to unfold, and it's not going to be really an experiment that I think is going to like. Uh, I think it's going to give some people some heartburn along the way because we'll probably find out some things as we emerge from the situation. We'll probably learn that we've been doing things wrong for, for a long time in some areas, um, and we'll adjust. Uh, or consumers and fans have, have overnight changed their habits, and now this is what they need and want, and it wasn't what we've been used to in the past. And so there's a big unknown out there, but I think the, the solutions to all those unknowns will probably be rooted somewhere in the digital electronic space, and I think gaming will, will definitely be part of it. All right. Before we get out of here, uh, we've covered a lot of things. You've had an incredible career that continues to flourish. Um, there are a lot of things that are near and dear to you. You've been to virtually every major event in your life. What went through your mind when the final seconds were ticking down in Boston, when the St. Louis Blues were winning that first Stanley Cup? And, and I know that for me, I was dehydrated from crying. I mean, I had no no fluids in my body because I was crying from emotion. And I, I thought about you, and I said, he may be crying harder than me. What was that feeling like for you? Because you and I have endured so much. And by the way, folks, Jim Woodcock wrote a book uh, about the St. Louis Blues a few years ago. Still one of my personal favorite books in how it was constructed. And I don't know if anybody can find it anywhere online or anything, but uh, a, a well-done piece. But I know the St. Louis Blues were near and dear to you because you were a hockey fan and a sports fan like myself. Yeah. Um, so I, my, my answer to that is probably interesting, uh, or maybe surprising. Um, I probably, I, I cried, <laughs> but I, but I probably cried more, believe it or not. Um, at the, uh, as, as it was clear to us, uh, game six against San Jose, when we had a three, nothing, four, nothing lead, I forgot what it was a pretty comfortable lead. I think San Jose had a goal, but. It was clear we were going to the Stanley Cup Finals. So the the we were, we were in Enterprise Center, obviously, and the and the crowd was, you know, building and roaring and rolling. And and I was with my daughter, and we had great seats. And it was just really evident that we're playing for the cup in this building, you know, next week or week and a half from now or whatever. And that moment really just overwhelmed me. Um, and um, I really had a tough time that night. <laughs> so, <laughs> and in fact, in fact, to be, if, I'm, if I'm being honest, I had a tough day the following day. I'd be I'd be driving along, and I would just start just like all of a sudden, like I got pulled over, you know. <laughs> I and and uh, so when so we get to the finals, and I, I you know I I was at game two in Boston for the for the overtime winner by Gunnarsson, and and that was. That was that was not a uh, that wasn't a, a crying of joy there. I was crying to get out of there alive because we we were well, <laughs> it was a challenging uh, experience to say the least. And I guess Game Seven, you know, I was with really really dear friends and a really close friend of mine. Could, well, where I was at, I I, I was at the, at the watch party at, uh, at Enterprise Center, and um, you know, you don't know if that's the right place to go. You know, it was Game Seven and. And you're like, you know, should I watch this at home and just be with myself, you know, by myself and with my own thoughts and all that sort of thing? If we lose, I'll be really happy I'm, you know, here. And if we win, it's probably the way it was meant to be. I just sort of reflect on it. But anyway, I made the call. I'm going to go. And I went with my, a lot of members of my family and some very close friends. But one friend 
made a judgment call that morning to be with his brother uh, in Tennessee who was going through a surge uh, procedure the next day. And that just selflessness, you know, was just like with me too. I was just like, oh, you know, I wish you were here with us. And his brother's fine. And, and so all those things combined with family, with his friends. And when, uh, when Shen scored the third goal, that's probably when I got the most emotional because I knew then. I, I did. I mean, I'm sorry if I was counting my chickens now, but I knew we had it, you know. <laughs> and, 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 and so at that point, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, again, kind of, kind of emotional. But by the time when we got to the final buzzer, I, it was time to party. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I wasn't crying then. You, you, I, you know, I, I, I was ready to go. You know, I mean, I was just, and, and it was the right kind of party. I mean, it was, it was, it was a celebration. It wasn't like, let's get out and get stupid or all that. It was, St. Louis was just, you know, as always, we just were so good at, at, at so many things. Um, and, and winning is one of them. We won gracefully. We won with dignity. We won, you know, with, there, there was no, 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 no violence. There was no trouble. Uh, it was just, it, it was, the, the streets were joyous that night. And, uh, so yeah, I was a long winded way of saying, you know, the memory of a lifetime and, and, uh, uh, I hope we do it again, but if we don't, I'm good. You know, I'm the same way. You know, if we don't, if it ever happens again, I, I've seen it, I've done it, and I can live with it. But I, I'll tell you, and maybe it hits you as well. There were so many moments and instances uh, of whether it was a player from yesteryear or how they were eliminated in the playoffs or something along. All those things kind of flashed through my mind until the final horn was sounded. And it was like my soul was cleansed. I mean, you know, I was ready. Yeah. I, I was ready to accept anything else because it was for all of those those anguishing moments that I had lived through to actually be able to behold this was was uh, it was the deal sealer as far yeah. as I was concerned. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned the the book, um, the, the, which I appreciate. And we did that back in two thousand and two, and I wrote the forward in the front and. You know, and I, I, I reread it about a month ago, and I put in there, we will win the cup one day. Um, you know, but then, you know, I'm just writing that because why not, right? I mean, how do I know? <laughs> you got right? nothing to lose you know? here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, 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 but also in that forward I wrote, I, I said, you know, it, it's sort of like there's like this sense of belonging if, if you're if you're a Blues fan. And, and you know, I, I get where the Cubs fans were coming from for all those years. And, you know, really, they went twice as long as Blues. Um, you know, there's something, you know what, you're just part of a, a family and a community and it's sort of a being uh, that transcends uh, the game itself. And I was good. I mean, I wanted to win the Stanley Cup, but I, I was at peace well before 2019. And it may not happen. It may not happen in my life. And if it doesn't, my life's okay, you know? I mean, it's actually great. Um, but to have it happen, then, you know, then you realize that there's, there was a part of you that was more unfulfilled than you knew, you know? And, and once it happened, I was like, you know what, this is, this has completed me in some sense. And I know it sounds really deep, you know, cause there's bigger things in the world to be worried about than winning a Stanley Cup. But nonetheless, when you grow up with a team and you love them and you get, you know, you have the privilege to work for them for, you know, a couple of seasons. It's it's uh, it's pretty profound, Jim Woodcock. It's uh, always fun to talk to you, whether it's in a podcast or just shooting the breeze. Uh, can't thank you enough for sharing your thoughts, not only about the blues, but certainly about your industry 
and where we're headed. Uh, I should tell everybody, just sit tight, be patient, and just let it happen because uh, a lot of things are going to be happening here in the very near future, and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on them as we grow with this uh, this post-COVID-19 situation. Uh, thanks, Clegg. You know, it's 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 um, it's uncharted, you know, waters for all of us, and um, the we'll, it'll be interesting. I think, from my industry standpoint, as to how teams respond, and 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 when we look back at how they responded, we'll know who did the best and who did the worst. I mean, it'll be pretty evident because it's going to be no one. No one has uh, a template here, you know. So everyone has to make really, really good decisions but they're also first-time decisions, and that's really tough. So uh, hopefully we'll be along to help some of those clients along and some of those teams. And for those that we're not helping out, I'll be watching closely. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and But I, I hope that we all come out of it fine. How's, how's that? That's Jim Woodcock. We thank him for visiting with us. Man, uh, Woody's been a great friend for so many years, but to hear him talk about all the things that he's done and the things that he's seen and the things we're going to see, Well, I got news for you. We'll get him back on once things start rolling again. But for now, we thank you for listening, and we thank our good friends from Ameren, Illinois, Fast Eddie's Bonaire, and, of course, our good friends from Munganast Automotive. For all of those good folks and Jim Woodcock, I'm Mike Claiborne, thanking you for listening to another installment of our podcast on ClaibsOnline.com.